6. We're beginning in this new year uh, a, couple of th- a couple of different things. One, today begins 21 days of prayer for us as a church. And this has been the last few years for us as a congregation. And we've seen this grow over the years into a really significant time in our spiritual development as a church. Uh, to set this kind of time aside and focus specifically on prayer. This year, uh, something new is all of our pastors are involved in the various gatherings, and we're excited for that. Uh, Shane will be leading a, a prayer walk for our community next Sunday after the service, and, and Mike Gilland, Mike Nash, Lewis, Danny, they're all going to be a part of different gatherings that are happening uh, throughout these next three weeks. Uh, there is a lot of different gatherings happening so that you can participate uh, we want you to be able to know about that. You can go to metrolife.org slash pray. But we also have this 21-day devotional guide for this, this time in God's Word. And what we're looking at is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in a portion of that this morning in uh, our text today. But what also is beginning in this new year is a series called Synopsis. It's seeing Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels as they're known. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the weeks ahead. But we really want to focus in on uh, an extension of what we began at Christmas time, where we were taking a look at the different gospels and what do they say about Jesus and what claims does that make on us as his followers. And so I invite you to be a part of that with us in the weeks ahead, and really more than just the weeks ahead, that this would become a lifestyle for us as a church. Isn't that the aim of why we take the kind of time that we do, whether it's in service, in our spiritual disciplines, in, in the things that we give ourselves to, it's, it's so that it becomes a lifestyle of following Jesus. Not just a one-off. These aren't the three weeks out of the year that we pray, just to be clear. These, but they're intended to help shape us and form us in a very specific way. And, and I think that there's a temptation at times when we have these types of rhythms throughout the year. Uh, we'll have a week of fasting, and it'll lead up to a, a night of worship, and, and that's going to be at the end of the month. It's an exciting time. But the intention for that is that it becomes a lifestyle for us, a dependence on the Father. And, you know, there, there's a, <clears throat> an interesting dynamic both in today's text in Matthew chapter 6, but also in our world around us today. There's constant conversation about our private faith and and our individual relationships with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and how that is that it draws us into the presence of God our Father, and how we are empowered by His Holy Spirit, and how we're to live that out in the public square. What it looks like to live that out in our homes or workplaces or campuses. What it means that that faith informs the way that we go about our daily lives, the routines that are so much a part of us just living. What claims does that make? More than that, how how much are we to bring that into our public faith? In our text today, we're going to see that there was actually a public display of faith that was very much a facade. It was a show. It was fake. And you know, I, I think that the church is rightfully accused of that at times. Since the mid-90s, something close to 40 million people have left the church. Now, there can be all kinds of reasons why. Shane and I have been working quite a bit over the last few months to explore why our elders and deacons have been having a conversation as to why what is our church's part in 
in reaching those that have maybe left the church or been hurt by the church. And I think we can be honest, church. Some have left because of hurt. Some have left because church is boring. I mean, not with speakers like Shane and Eric, obviously, but you're listening to me drone on about how bad we are now. Some look at church and they just think, well, services last too long. I had someone that was a, a family member, extended family member. I've known him since our high school years. And he said, you know, your, your church service is an hour and a half long and I only have an hour and 15 minute bladder. Your church service is too long. And I said, Jesse Anderson, I love you anyway. <laughs> we can acknowledge the hurt that happens in the church sometimes when our opinions become a new form of legalism or the gospel itself. Unfortunately, I, I would have to admit I, I've been a part of that at times. But for the grace of God, may we change. Maybe some would say, well, the church only wants my money. Well, the good news is that's in our text today, so Scripture does speak about our money quite a bit. It's going to speak to two aspects of that today. Maybe some would just say, you know, there's, there's something that's too organizational, too institutional about religion. It's supposed to be a relationship. And maybe others would say the church has become too political. I think all of those to varying degrees are things that we should examine, take seriously, not write off as just some wanderer or prodigal. Some would say that the church is filled with hypocrites. And here's where it's most easy for me to stand before you to say, it's true. I find myself chief among them at times. Filled with hypocrites, saying one thing, doing another. That'll go to the church because it's filled with hypocrites. We listen to a hypocrite. Yeah, guilty as charged. We are a church filled with sinners in need of a Savior. We fail in sin against one another in all sorts of ways, including hypocrisy. We recognize that hypocrisy is a sin. Everybody got real quiet. Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to find hope in today's passages. We're going we're gonna to meet one who will meet us where we are because in Matthew chapter 6, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses hypocrisy. It may look slightly different in our cultural context today, but the heart and the principle and the motive of things that Jesus is after is no different today. He's after our hearts. And, and, and as I've been praying about this over the last few weeks, as we've been preparing for this series, as we've been preparing for these 21 days, a thought has come to mind. It would be very easy to just preach a message about how to pray. It would be easy to preach a message about how to give, uncomfortable but easy. It would be easy to preach a message about the ways that we should go about fasting because there's pretty clear instruction here about how to go about that. You know what I think is not easy today is to resolve the question of what do we do when we can acknowledge that we're hypocrites? How do we change in that? And this is what I believe that the Spirit of the Lord has spoken to me today. We 
do so, we grow out of a hypocrisy by keeping a spiritual hunger. I wonder today if part of the reason that the church has to own accusations of hypocrisy is because we have lost a spiritual hunger. It's easy to go about things and say, I participated in the 21 days of prayer. I pray. I fast. I give. And we treat it as it's this new form of legalism, which is what we've been freed from, and we forget about the dependence of the relationship that we've been called to. And we lose a spiritual hunger in this day and age because our hungers and our desires and our longings are being fed by so many other things. I want to stand before you and acknowledge hypocrisy, but more than that, I want to say, church, wake up from the slumber of that. Quit being fed by the things of the world. Quit finding satisfaction in the things of the world. Yes, Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but we know his schemes, and one of his schemes is to try to keep us satisfied with the things that we've been freed from. And so today, church, rather than a call to pray, which is the title of the sermon, I think this is actually a call to return to spiritual hunger. What are you hungry for today? Are you hungry for healing in your relationships? Start with a spiritual hunger in your own heart and mind. Are you hungry for something to happen in your finances? Start with a spiritual hunger in your own heart and mind. Are you hungry for something to change in your marriage? Start with a spiritual hunger in your own heart and mind. Are you hungry for something to change with a child in your household? Start with a spiritual hunger in your own heart and mind. I'm not here to try to present this as if it's some sort of easy one-step process. What I'm here to do this morning is call us back to a place of dependence on the one who saved us and the spirit that empowers us. So with that in mind, church, let's turn to God's word and read beginning Matthew chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. There's the cultural context, just a heads up, in order to be seen by them. Beware of showing up on Sunday mornings, church, just to be seen by others. For when you, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, church, watch your motives when you give. These first few verses speak to giving and as in almsgiving. It's what Shane was talking about in terms of, of caring for those in need, those in a vulnerable spot. And you may think, well, Chris, that talks about giving, but it doesn't talk about money. Actually, let's just jump down in verse 19. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. In other words, God's word speaks to money in all sorts of ways, shapes, and forms. This isn't just about giving. This isn't just about a way to cajole you to more uh, giving in the days ahead so that we can do more. This is about asking you 
to review in your own heart and mind what God has called you to. I wonder today if because of things that we have done in terms of going online with our giving and the way that we, our, our generosity happens, it can happen so much in secret. Bags don't pass on Sunday mornings anymore. There isn't a moment necessarily in every service where we stop and pause and consider what it is that God's called us to do with our money. How many of us have just put it on autopilot that we have our payment happen on a monthly basis or quarterly basis? Some give annually, some give weekly, and we don't think another thing of it. And you know what? You might have set that up four pay raises ago. I don't know. Maybe you're the person that sits there and says, I am going to round this up to 35 cents instead of 33 cents for the glory of God as you're looking at your giving because you want to be precise with the percentage that you're giving. I don't know the answer to those questions. I don't see the giving records for the church. But can I say this? The God who sees your heart is speaking to it today. And the question is, what is your motive in giving? What is it that you're doing with your money? How is it that your money exposes what your true trust lies in? How is it that the way that you go about your day, the things that you give your eye to, the things that you're saving up for, how much does that expose what it is that you're truly living for? After verse 19, it's going to go on and talking about our treasures, and it's something that reveals our heart. So today, I'm not here to talk to you about your savings, checking, 401k, I'm here to talk to you about your heart, and I'm here to ask you the question, what's God doing in your heart as it relates to your money and your finances? You know, Jesus is addressing the key issue not of money, but of motive. He's after our motives in giving. In verse 6-1, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others so that you could be seen by them. And in Matthew 5-20, just a few verses before this, Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, what are you after? Are you after us doing this in public or are you after us doing this in secret? He's after our heart. When Jesus speaks, he speaks beyond our circumstances and he speaks to our heart and our drive and our motivation. And this is why I say that I think, church, this is beyond a message about giving or prayer or fasting or wealth. And this is a message about this, spiritual hunger. It's a message about what it is that we're to do. In the ESV, it says, beware. Other translations might say this, be careful. What is it? It's a present imperative. Jesus wasn't just talking to those that were gathered with him on the mountainside. He's speaking to us today. Be careful, take care, give attention to this. Constantly check your motives. I don't know about you, but I love bill paying services. I love not having to think about those things on the monthly basis. Have you been in that mindset as it relates to your generosity as well, where you have been on autopilot for years? And the Lord Jesus today, through his Holy Spirit, wants to say, wake up. See, Jesus is teaching us Anytime that we're involved in doing some sort of good works is, why am I doing them? Asking that question is a healthy thing. Why is it that I'm going about being a part of these good works? Is my motivation in doing good works like giving, praying, fasting, the desire to honor and glorify God? Or is it just to make sure that 
I'm in good standing with him so that when that big prayer need comes up, he'll listen. No, you're serving yourself if that's your motivation. Is your desire to gain glory and praise for yourself through the applause of man? Do you make a show of it when you give? Do you talk about the ways that you're generous? There's this sense of Jesus using some things that were happening in verse 2 when he mentions the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets. It would be easy for us to think about that as as hypocrites being those Pharisees and those scribes. And yes, that's true, but the hypocrites in the streets were somebody very different. They were play actors. They were a part of the stage. They were pretending. They were putting up a facade. In this day and age, it would not be unusual for there to be performances that happen in the street. And they're putting on these dramatic performances. And and Jesus is saying in the midst of these uh, moments of using this word, hypocrisy he's calling back to Isaiah chapter 29 where it says this hypocrites these people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me he's calling us back to something not to worship him in vain not to teach doctrines as commands of men in other words do you have a pretend devotion to God in the way that you go about your financial planning Jesus is calling you to a divine relationship. And he's saying this, when you do give, notice that the assumption of Jesus is that you are a part of generosity. That this is a base level aspect of the Christian life. If you ever wonder, where do I begin with these things? Generous living is a very practical aspect of discipleship. We can give knowing that the Father who sees us in secret, he is himself our reward. But notice the warning that we see here. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what you're doing. Why? Because the verse says this, Truly I say to you, they that give in this way where they are seeking the praise of others, they have already received their reward. If you give with an earthly motive, you're going to gain an earthly reward. If you participate in these things with a heavenly motive, you will receive a heavenly reward. I don't know about you, church. I don't want to live for this world. I want to live for that day to come. And we can seek God's pleasure. Your Father who sees in those moments of sacrifice. Your Father who sees in those moments of hidden generosity will reward you. Notice that's not the end all. Keeping all these brownie points with God is not the point of this. And at the same time, being able to receive the pleasure of God himself. What a delight, church. What a delight to know that the God of the universe will delight in you. Now, let me be clear here. What I'm not talking about is all of these things that we do as a church. That just means that we are corporately delighted in. And you get to be a part of that. No, what I'm talking about is you as an individual. Me as an individual. The Lord delights in you. Think about that for a moment. It begins to help us understand why it is that the prophets of old would say, who am I that you would be mindful of me? In the midst of all of this in your creation, in the the spans of the universe, in the glories of this world, who am I that you will be mindful of me? 
And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I don't think that there's the Greek word for y'all. It's not y'all. It's you. It's individual. It's personal. Let's continue to read together. And when you pray, notice again, there is this baseline assumption that this is a part of our normal life. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Are you picking up a pattern? That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you have need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the glory and the... No, that's not in there. I'm just checking to see how many of y'all grew up in the church. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sobering words. I kind of prefer the, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And I don't usually say amen. I'm more of an amen guy. What's Jesus after here? Once again, he's after our hearts. He's after the sincerity of our hearts. What is it you're doing this for? Now notice this. Not only is this a regular habit of grace in the life of the believer in the same way that generosity is, prayer, and as we'll see in just a moment, fasting is as well, the way that we use our wealth. These are parts of the habits of grace in the life of a follower of Jesus. But what is Jesus after here when when we're talking about a sincerity to our prayer? Well, don't pretend to be what you're not. I, I grew up in the church, and I have this distinct memory of one of the pastors of the church that I grew up in. He did my grandparents' funeral, and he, when he would pray, he would say, God. Perhaps you had a pastor like that, and, and you recall that moment where it was like put on his pastor voice when he stepped into the pulpit. Perhaps... That's where some of this hypocrisy challenge has come to the church over the years. Because we live like he's God on Sundays and we forget that he's God all the time. But we don't have to pray like that. Don't pretend to be what you're not. If you are a follower of Jesus, do you know what you are? You are a child of God. And he starts by reminding us that in the way that he models prayer for us by saying, our Father. Our Father. 
What else is he saying in terms of sincerity? Don't put on a show. Don't flaunt a false sense of spirituality. I might say it this way. Don't feel the need to pray as if you're praying the King James Version of the Bible. If you don't thee and thine the rest of the day, don't thee and thine in your prayers. Don't get a case of the Lord God's. Just say what the Lord is laying on your heart because your Father knows before you even ask Him what you need. And you know what He doesn't need? Weird grammar. Just be yourself. Don't pray for the praise of people. I've been in a discipleship group for the last few months. A couple of men we meet on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m. I'm going to tell you well where because you're not invited. And I've been challenged by one of their prayer lives. The way that he talks about prayer has challenged me. I've even told him, I love how you talk about prayer. I want to talk about prayer in that way. He talks about prayer as if it's this ongoing conversation with his father. And you know what? That's exactly what prayer is. It is an ongoing communion with our heavenly father. I've been challenged by that. I've shared it with him. The way that he'll talk about prayer, whether it's what's going on in his own heart and mind when he's trying to sort through or sift through the things and the circumstances of life, some of which in this last few months have been tragic, some of which in this last week has been glorious. He talks about it in those moments, those little in-betweens. He talks about it in those interactions with his employees when there's a tense interaction and it ends with prayer, sitting in, in the truck of somebody's, in the cab of somebody's truck. I'm challenged. I'm spurred on by that. He is not praying for the praise of people. He is in communion with his heavenly Father, and that provokes me. See, hypocrites are not sincere when they pray. They pray for the show. And so, let, let me ask you just a couple of questions that might help us understand how it is, what it is our motive for praying. Do you pray longer in public than you do in private? Do you speak differently? See, verse 7 speaks to that. It says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Don't be making stuff up. God's listening. You don't have to speak more to gain his ear. You're not speaking through the cacophony of creation. He hears you because you're his child. Second, do you pray differently in public than you do in private? I've had at times to confess, sometimes my prayer life is one highly offensive line. Sometimes it's as simple as this. Lord Jesus, be near. Lord Jesus, help. Lord Jesus, I don't know. When I pray that way in private, it makes sense to me. When I pray that way out loud and then I just move on with something, sometimes that can be confusing to people. And I have to confess, I'm sorry, this is, this is how I pray. Except that I'm not sorry because my Father, who knows what I need before I even ask it, is listening to me. Pray secretly to your Heavenly Father. Now, to be clear, this is not a word against public prayer. 
This is not a way for us to say, well, prayer must just be formality or ritual if it happens in front of other people. No, prayer is commended throughout Scripture. But what the Lord sets for us as a practice is to pray in private, to seek out the Father who's in heaven, and to know that He hears us. See, the the hypocrite prays for approval of a human audience. The true disciple prays for the approval of a heavenly audience. And it's that approval and pleasure of our heavenly Father. That's all that we need. It's all that we want. But pray specifically to Him. Pray to your heavenly Father. See, throughout Scripture, what we see in Jesus' prayer life is that His prayers are personal, they're spontaneous, they're an expression of deep communion with God as His Father. And through Jesus, we too can pray this way. Because of Him uniting us with Himself in His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension, we too can pray in that way. It doesn't have to be some perfectly memorized thing. It can be an ongoing, ever-present conversation with our Father. Let's continue to read together, church. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, to be clear, fasting is something that consists of abstaining from eating, drinking, or even sexual activity for the purposes of prayer, for spiritual devotion, for mourning, grief, or repentance. There, there are numerous ways that Scripture talks about fasting. And Jonah 3 shows us that fasting could be something that's done corporately. That's what we're experiencing as a church. The Old Testament talks about a required self-denial or fasting for the nation of Israel as a part of the celebration of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus. The prophets in the Old Testament also condemn hypocrisy in fasting. And Jesus' teaching about fasting then is built on those prophets of old. In other words, God's opinion on this hasn't changed since that day. There's this literary parallel that Jesus wants to make sure that we bring these things things together. So whenever you give, whenever you pray, whenever you fast, Jesus is saying, these are not the things that I'm here to abolish. They're the things I'm here to redeem for my glory. So don't draw attention to yourself when you fast. Don't look gloomy, it says. Gloomy is the word that's used here. Sad face, droll, sunken, sullen. Because this fasting is just a show before other people. You know, it's one of those things where we realize that as we're going about life, others may not be fully aware of the hypocrisies that we're living in, but, but we can be. The Holy Spirit can reveal those things to us. When we're going about our day, how is it that we're going to speak about fasting? I know that for myself right now, I'm in the middle of preparing for a fast, so that means that there are things that are changing with my diet. There are things that I'm ordering to be able to have on hand because of certain medicines that I'm on at this time. There's a a preparation that goes to that. But I don't share that with you so that it's like, look at me, I'm going to fast for that entire week. If I have a lunch appointment, I might have a meal. 
What's important in those moments is that it's before a heavenly father. When, when the scripture goes on to say, put on oil and wash your face, this isn't Jesus' version of girl, wash your face. This is him actually saying that if your fasting is a show before others, it means that you're not acting normally. See, in the dry, arid desert, this kind of anointing of the head would have been normal for moisturization. Washing of the face would have been a part of a normal daily routine. Do you know what these other things were? Walking around gloomy and as if you're putting on this makeup, that is mourning. That is mourning. And what we're fasting from is so that we can gain something that we don't need to mourn in. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not something to look at and say, oh Jesus, I just need you. And I'm mourning this moment because you call me to fast that I might receive you. No. You get to receive your Father. He's the reward that you're seeking. So act normal when you fast. It's so that it's not obvious to others. It's so that your Father who is spirit, who sees in secret, will know your motivations. And we'll be able to give you that eternal reward. The one who sees the silent gift, the private prayer, the unnoticed fast, he will bless you with an eternal heavenly reward. The reward might come later, but the reward will be so much better. It was the way of Jesus. He sets the model for us when he makes his way to the cross. For the salvation of hypocrites like me and you. People who need to have a spiritual hunger restored. He clearly understood that all that matters in this life is that we please God. So may our Heavenly Father, in His good grace and mercy in these 21 days, help us to learn the way of Jesus. May he grace us by his Holy Spirit to know the difference between pleasing men and pleasing God. May his Spirit come not only to convict, but also to bring us and draw us even closer. Not just so that we might receive gifts or power, all those things are wonderful and true and they are part of the blessing of the Christian life, but so that we might receive God as our eternal reward so that we might find his pleasure as enough, as satisfying for our souls that are so tempted to look every which way but him as we go about our daily routines. I want to return just for a moment since we are going into prayer just to look a little bit more at the Lord's Prayer because it instructs us for our Christian life when we pray, how is it that we should pray? Well, we should start with our Heavenly Father and we should share our concerns with Him. Very simply. Start with God and share our concerns with Him. I'm not here to try to tell you this is a formulaic way that your prayers will be answered. 
But perhaps you're here today and you say, I I love this idea of prayer. It's just not something that I have developed in my life and I want to be normal about it. I want to be myself about it. But how is it that I go about it? Well, Jesus models that for us. He says to start with your heavenly father and share your concerns. Pray for the Lord's name to be honored. As we pray, what is it that we're doing? We begin to admire or esteem or honor or revere or treasure God's name above all others, including our circumstances. Our perspective shifts to a heavenly one, to an eternal one, that the Lord's name would be honored and that his kingdom would come. We want God's rule and reign right now, today, in my life, in my home, in my city, in my country, around the world, in my circumstances, throughout the universe, the Lord's rule and reign come. Pray for his will to be done. So closely related to kingdom come, that his will would be done. It's not only that we want his rule, but we want our submission to his rulership as well. See how this is beginning to posture us in a right way in our communion with him. It's not saying that there are other gods who are equal to him. It's not saying that there are circumstances beyond his control. It's setting our minds right. It's getting the order right in our disordered lives. That his will would be done. That we would be submitted to that. It models what Jesus prayed in the garden at Gethsemane. And share your concerns. We're we're shifting from acknowledging God to pouring out our hearts and our needs before him. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, Satan wants to convince us that prayer is a waste of time. But the word of God and our own Christian experience assures us that prayer is a key to God's treasury of grace. What a wonderful way to put that. So what can we do? Well, we can ask for our daily needs to be met. See, so much of our world today seems to tempt us to skip this crucial part of prayer. James 1.17 reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. This prayer also reminds us that our eternal needs, just like our daily needs, are met by the one who is himself in John 6 called the bread of life. It sets our minds right in our posture of prayer to ask for our daily needs to be met, to acknowledge him as the source of provision. Ask for God to forgive you as you forgive others. I think there can be a temptation at time for us to wonder about what repentance looks like in the daily life of a follower of Jesus. An acknowledgement of wrongdoing. But this model and pattern of prayer that Jesus provides for us clearly shows us he intends for repentance to be a part of the lifestyle of the believer. We're not coming to him, J.I. Packer says, in a way that we do not have confidence But Packer says it this way in his book, Praying. The Lord's Prayer is a family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father. 
and through their daily failures, they do not overthrow their justification. But things will not be right between them and their father until they have said sorry and ask him to overlook the ways that they have let him down. In other words, there is a restoration through repentance to right relationship. As we ask for the daily bread, we also ask for forgiveness of our sins, which is why the word debtor is used here. We were faced with an insurmountable debt because of our rebellion against an infinite God. But that entire debt has been wiped out because of the gracious work of Jesus Christ. In justification, the Lord Jesus washed, past tense, all of our sins away. And now in sanctification, He washes, in the present tense, all of our sins away. And Jesus adds a crucial qualifier that we can't miss. We ask God to forgive us our sins in the same way that we forgive others. We don't want to fall prey to the trap of the ungrateful servant that's talked about in Matthew chapter 18, refusing to forgive a fellow servant of a minor debt after he was forgiven an unpayable debt by the great king. He makes it soberingly clear in verses 14 and 15, saying, if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive, oh, it's a revelation of a heart that's not been changed by a realization of how much you've been forgiven. Do you see how dangerous it is, church, for us to just try to put our faith on autopilot and not daily cultivate a gratitude and a spiritual hunger for the grace of God and his mercies that are new every morning. It may seem strange to us to ask God to deliver us from the evil one. That's how the prayer ends. And let's admit it. There are numerous things that we face on the daily basis in our circumstances that Satan could use as a temptation in our lives. John Piper, in talking about prayer, refers to it as a walkie-talkie in wartime rather than an intercom in a house for comfort. I don't think the intercoms in a home are all that normal anymore. If it's like my house, I just text the kids when they're in room, come see me. Okay, maybe that's just me. Do you remember the intercom in the house? I mean, that was that rich house on the street. It's the one every realtor tell you, you know, don't buy the most expensive houses on the street. Buy the one that's kind of in the midline. But there was always that one house that had an intercom, and I meant they had money. And it was always a big house too, right? You, you never put an intercom in a mobile home because it's big enough to know what's going on in the next room. But in that big house, when for your convenience you needed something, rather than shouting and wasting your diaphragm and vocal cords, what are you going to do? Just press the button for convenience. And how many of us treat prayer in that way? God's got so much going on, he doesn't want to have anything to do with what I'm working through right now. But there's this inconvenience I can't take care of myself, so I'm going to press the intercom in prayer. I'm going to say, could you please bring this to me? This is just this thing I need. And Piper says, no, reject that. Prayer is a walkie-talkie in wartime. You are in a spiritual war in this life, church. Never forget that. And in that, what does that walkie-talkie do? It keeps you connected to the help that you need 
in the battle that you face. Deliver us from evil. Keep us away from temptation. I'm in a circumstance I can't handle here. I'm pinned down, Father. What does he do? He richly rushes in and provides the grace that you need in that moment. Church, may we be stirred to see how great our need is for God for our spiritual survival. I wonder if a way that we would do that this morning, can we all just stand together before we sing, is to simply recite the Lord's Prayer together. Would you join with me now? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.